0: Let's pray. Heavenly Father, creator of all, at this opening of Villanova's celebration of the Jubilee year, dedicated to the Apostle Paul, we call upon the Holy Spirit to open our minds and hearts to hearing the word of God in new ways. Help us to more fully appreciate the life and legacy of St. Paul, who was transformed by your call and who brought your good news, the hope of salvation to all. Renew the minds of all who participate with us. Encourage us to seek your will, and in all things what is good and acceptable in your sight. May we be inspired during this year to become more like the Apostle Paul himself, a servant of Christ, and a steward of the mysteries of God. And we make this prayer In the name of your Son, our Lord, Jesus Christ, amen.
1: Good evening, I'm Barbara Wall from the Office for Mission Effectiveness. And as we begin this symposium, honoring the request of Pope Benedict XVI to dedicate this jubilee year, which celebrates the 1000th anniversary of St. Paul's birth, we reflect on the the words of Pope Benedict. From the earliest times, the Church of Rome has celebrated the solemnity of the great apostles, Peter and Paul, as a single feast on the same day, June 29th. Through their martyrdom, they became brothers together, and they are founders of the new Christian Rome. Peter and Paul met each other at least twice in Jerusalem at the, end of their pa- and at the end, their paths took them to Rome. Paul arrived in Rome as a prisoner, but at the same time as a Roman citizen, who after his arrest in Jerusalem as a Roman citizen appealed to the emperor, to whose tribunal he was brought. But in a more profound sense, Paul came to Rome voluntarily. Through the most important of his letters, he had already drawn close to this city interiorly to the church in Rome. He had addressed the writing which more than any other is the synthesis of his whole proclamation and his faith. In the opening salutation of the letter, he says that the whole world speaks of the faith of the Christians of Rome, and that this faith therefore was known everywhere as exemplary. Rome is for Paul, a stage on the way to Spain, that is, according to his conception of the world, towards the extreme end of the earth. He considers his mission to be the fulfillment of the task received from Christ, the bringing of the gospel to the very ends of the world. Rome is along this route. While Paul usually only goes to places where the gospel had not yet been announced, Rome is an exception. There he finds a church whose faith the world speaks about. Going to Rome is part of the universality of his mission as one sent to all peoples. The way to Rome, which already before his external trip, he had traveled interiorly with, this, with his letter, is an integral part of his task of bringing the gospel to all peoples, of founding the church, Catholic and universal. Going to Rome is for him the expression of his mission's Catholicity. Rome must make the faith visible to the whole world. It must be the meeting place in the one faith. And those are the words of Pope Benedict XVI in announcing this year, the jubilee year, of Paul the Apostle. It is our hope in sponsoring these events that honor the life and writings of St. Paul that we might all find inspiration and continue his work of contributing to a church whose faith is evident in the activity of the world around us whenever grace, wisdom, and justice abound. Today at Villanova University, we officially open the Year of Paul with a Vesper service, Vespers being the prayer of the church. In these two days of prayer, reflection, and celebration, we celebrate the Year of Paul and the life and work of two Catholic biblical scholars, Fathers Joseph Fitzmyer and Jerome Murphy O'Connor, who are with us this evening. We're very honored by your presence on our campus. These two men have contributed so much to the world of biblical scholarship and reflection. I always remember the words of one of my mentors, Father Pete Schoenenberg who used to love to come to Adrian, one of the reasons he said he always loved to come to Adrian, Michigan, which I always thought was centrally isolated in the middle of nowhere, but anyway, he apparently loved to come to Adrian, was because, he said, people always expected something from me and of me. So, but he would always say to me, uh, my study is my ministry. And I never forgot that. What a wonderful thing that study, research, is a very important form of ministry in the life of the church. And we celebrate that in the lives of our speakers this, uh, these two days, that their ministry and their work in the universities that they are part of and also in the wider church is a ministry of study and reflection. We also celebrate this gift of study in the life of the larger church and in every Catholic university especially. We thought it appropriate that in honor of St. Paul, who traveled the world to bring the good news of the gospel, that we would invite Dr. William Campbell from across the Atlantic to share his reflections on St. Paul, traveling as Paul did. Dr. William Campbell arrived this week from the University of Wales, and we are honored to have such an internationally recognized scholar on the writings of St. Paul with us for these two days. He holds degrees and bachelor's degrees from Belfast and Dublin and PhD from Edinburgh. His publications since 2001 include Paul and the Creation of Christian Identity, Unity and Diversity in the Church, Transformed Identities and the Peace of Christ in Ephesians for Irish biblical studies, perceptions of compatibility between Christianity and Judaism in Pauline interpretation, in Biblical Interpretation, Martin Luther and Paul's Epistle to the Romans in Luther Digest, the Contribution of Traditions to Paul's Theology and Pauline Theology, the Rule of Faith in Romans again in Pauline Theology. There are so many works that we could cite on the part of Dr. Campbell's work and specialization in Paul but I just thought I would highlight those for you. Dr. Campbell's research interests are identity formation in the Pauline communities, Jewish Christianity, Paul's politics of difference and equality, ethnicity, ethics and transformation in Pauline literature, social scientific approaches to Paul, Paul's gospel in a multi-faith world, and Pauline theology. In a day in which we, uh, in a time, I should say, in the world, and particularly in many universities, whether Catholic or not, we speak of the importance of diversity and living in a diverse world. Certainly, the Apostle Paul uh, could very well be, <coughs> excuse me, the, uh, the prophetic voice from centuries ago that spoke to us very strongly about the importance of being uh, about the world and, and uh, celebrating the gospel in diverse communities. We are pleased and honored to have Professor William Campbell who will speak to us on the topic, I Rate All Things a Loss, Paul's Rhetoric of Comparison. Please join me in warmly welcoming Professor William Campbell. (coughs)
2: This evening is <coughs> a great privilege and pleasure for me to participate in this wonderful event. I would like to thank in uh, particular, those people who invited me and helped to make all the arrangements in such great detail, uh, Marcia Bray, uh, Professor Wall and uh, Peter Spitaler, Spitaler and all the others uh, who have made this event possible. I'm most impressed by the beautiful buildings and the location you have here. But most of all, I was impressed with the chapel service and with the singing and the presentation and particularly the young people taking part. And if I don't speak to anyone else tonight, I hope I might have something to say to them. Because uh, my address, if anything, bears on the side of simplicity. Uh, I could be profound. Uh, that's my story, uh, but uh, I'm trying to make what I'm say, what I want to say, intelligible. It's a great privilege, of course, for me to sit alongside such significant scholars as Jerome Murphy-O'Connor and also uh, our our other senior scholar, Professor Joseph Fitzmeyer, both of whose work is known to me over many years, and. I am most impressed when I look again at their bibliographies and the years of dedication that they have put in in their studies. Once when I was in Jerusalem in 1995, uh, Professor Murphy O'Connor said to me, he said, if you want to publish, you need to put in the hours, and I think both of them have certainly put in the hours and given us a record number and quality of publications. I am privileged, therefore, to be part of this gathering and to introduce this lecture this evening. My title might seem a little bit strange, I Rate All Things as Loss, Paul's Puzzling Accounting System, Judaism as Loss, or the reevaluation of All Things in Christ. Now, if I came here this evening, and I might surprise you by saying, I rate good food, good health, happiness, family, career satisfaction as loss. They would say that's a strange sort of chap, but negative, world denying with a strange value system. But if I preface my statement by saying compared with being in Christ, I rate all these things as loss, then it puts a whole different slant because what I'm talking about tonight is the comparison of things with being in Christ. And that should put a completely new value system before us all. And I hope that in being true to the message of Paul, that is, that he turned the values of the world upside down, he got into a great deal of trouble because of it. But I hope that this is a way in which we might follow the example of Paul in re all things in Christ. In this paper I'm trying to answer three questions. First of all, how did Paul evaluate Judaism in relation to Christ? Secondly, how could he have one rule for all his churches if he wrote letters to each particular church? I'd consider these issues in relation to three texts. 1 Corinthians 7, 17-24 Galatians 6.11-16 and Philippians 3.3-8 so you have a handout and at appropriate point uh, if uh, I need to jog your memory or you want to check that this is what the text really says then I hope that you can have a look and see uh, and I've mainly in agreement with the Jerusalem Bible which I've chosen and which actually chose not particularly for this meeting believe it or not for a try out of this talk with the postgraduate colloquium in April. When Paul compares in these three texts uh, certain items, what is the common element? What's he trying to do? In making these comparisons, I think, Paul has been trying to clarify what it means to be in Christ. But in the process of so doing, partly because of the comparison, I think he has been greatly misunderstood so by looking at these texts individually and then assessing our findings I hope to be able to show that Paul's comparisons are a key to central themes of his theologizing and then while looking at these things I will attempt to show how Paul's statements in his letters are related to our contemporary understanding of his theology, that's the third point The starting point for recent study of Paul's letters is to view the statements made by Paul as targeted to a particular audience at a specific time. The nuance here and the contrast is between the general letter and the particular letter. What we are arguing is that though there is evidence at a later time than that of Paul of general letters being circulated to more than one church, Paul's policy was to address a specific church or group of churches With a document specifically directed to them and to their particular local problems. Thus the letters to the Corinthians address problems within that community of Christ followers. Though what Paul says to them may indirectly have a wider reference to other places facing similar problems. So too as we have heard already in relation to Romans and also Galatians. Uh, Even though in Romans Paul addresses a church he uh, he has not yet visited. Despite writing these letters to particular churches about specific problems, Paul shows that he is quite well informed even about what's going on in Rome, even though not all parts of this letter, as with other letters, have equal application to issues in Rome. Some parts of Paul's letters only indirectly address local issues, but serve a subsidiary function in that they are designed to support arguments that do directly address local issues. Thus the contents of the letters as a whole may and do have local and particular implication and significance, but not each individual section of them. In this sense, therefore, Paul's letters are real letters that require a response on the part of the people addressed. They are not simply theological treatises, though everyone agrees that Paul's letters contain marvelous theological conceptions. They contain theology, but they are not to be read simply as abstract theological statements, detached from the context which they actually address. If they are read as general statements made to address all and every context, they are easily misunderstood and can in this way be grossly misinterpreted and even made to appear very contradictory. So, for example, when Paul forbids Gentile Christ followers in Galatians to accept circumcision, but then states in Romans then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? And his answer says, much in every way, so we get into contradictions when we don't pay attention to the context. But someone may ask are we not by this greatly devaluing Paul's which have always been regarded as addressing the whole church and as containing universal truths, rather than advice for local congregations? Certainly not. What we are recognizing more and more is that Paul considered that the best way to do theology, to theologize as I would call it, is to address local issues in the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ and thereby to create theological statements contextually rooted but with the potential to be reinterpreted in other contexts and even applied to other issues in ever-changing circumstances. The letters of Paul are not to be considered as theology in and by themselves but as the raw material for creating theology for new situations and new issues in other contexts. But this still does not allow us to escape the problem that these letters that we do have from Paul, however valuable and however treasured in the church, are still all addressed to particular churches in local contexts. How then can Paul specifically speak as he does in 1 Corinthians 7:17 to 24 our first passage, reporting, this is my rule in all the churches. How can an apostle who addresses particular churches concerning their specific local problems claim still to have a rule that he applies to all his churches? Let us look then at 1 Corinthians 7, 17-24, which you will find on the back of the handout, and I'll just look briefly at one or two aspects of, of this text. And Paul says three times in the course of this, uh, these uh, verses, 17 to 24. Let everyone continue in the part which the Lord has allotted to him, as he was when God called him. This is the rule that I give to all the churches. If a man who is called has already been circumcised, then he must stay circumcised. When a non-circumcised man is called, he may not be circumcised. To be circumcised is of no importance, and to be uncircumcised is of no importance. What is important is the keeping of God's commandments. Everyone should stay in whatever state he was in when he was called. So if you were called, you were a slave, do not think it matters. Even if you had a chance of freedom, you should prefer to make full use of your condition as a slave. You see, anyone who was called in the Lord while a slave... Is a free a free man of the Lord, and in the same way, anyone who was free when called is a slave of Christ. You have been bought at a price. Do not be slaves now to any human being. And finally he repeats the third time each one of you brothers is to stay before God in the state in which you were called. Now, in a previous study of, of this text, uh, I argued that there is a strong element of comparison within it which functions to bring out the relative significance of the differing items involved. The crucial point of the verse is not a comparison of the relative merits of circumcision and uncircumcision but a comparison of both circumcision and uncircumcision with the will of God. The text does after the statement that circumcision is nothing But continues, and uncircumcision is nothing. Thus it is not a comparison between A and B, but that is between circumcision and uncircumcision, but a comparison of A and B with C. Paul asserts, and you can take different translations, different ways of putting it, circumcision is nothing. Udon. And uncircumcision is nothing. But what is worthwhile, what is important, is keeping the commandments of God. Galatians 6.15 is similar in some respects. Here again in Galatians the focus of Paul is not merely circumcision or its opposite but rather a new creation perspective in which all of life is revalued in the light of Christ. The rhetoric of comparison is also present in our third text, Philippians 3.3-8 in a slightly different form. The reference to circumcision in 1 Corinthians 7.17 following occurs in a chapter in which Paul continues to respond directly to issues which were causing tensions in the community in Corinth. Paul chooses to stress the life in Christ in terms of calling. This cow cal stem appears and reappears frequently throughout this section of the letter. In responding to the issue whether a woman should divorce a husband who is not a follower of Christ, Paul stresses that believers are called to peace. Immediately after this emphasis Paul lays down a policy to let everyone lead the life which the Lord has assigned to him and in which God has called him, adding, this is my rule in all the churches. Now the the repetition of the rule three times shows that Paul is clearly putting a policy in, in view here. That is, you remain as you were when called, that is, if you were a Jew when called, you can continue to follow a Jewish pattern of life even in Christ. But if you are a Gentile, you must not undertake circumcision and you must continue to live life as a Gentile in Christ. That remaining in the state of circumcision or uncircumcision means remaining as Jews or Gentiles in Christ is clear. Once we recognize that Paul says in Romans, Christ became a servant to the circumcision meaning, of course, the Jews. We must recognize, therefore, that the references to circumcision on circumcision are not simply to the act of circumcision, but should rather refer to the state of being a circumcised person or a non-circumcised person. That is, you could say, Jews or Gentiles. Also, we should note that despite the listing of various topics, such as splitting into factions around differing leaders in Corinth, and despite addressing these very directly, Paul does not simply respond with ad hoc advice, but rather with context-related guidance, placing all his advice within the framework of divine calling, obligation, and status, and yet emphasizing the abiding difference at the point of call. Surprisingly, Paul even has a theology about remaining in the state of circumcision or uncircumcision in which people were called. I've also argued previously that the reference to circumcision here does not quite fit with the Stoic conception of indifferent things. Obviously if Paul's arguments are to have real force in the Greco-Roman world of the first century, Corinth, where the influence of Stoic philosophical values is widespread, then Paul must take these into account when he is teaching in that city. Thus it may be important to consider the parallels between Paul and Stoic philosophers, especially in relation to such items as life and death, marriage, slavery, etc. The common feature of such a comparison is that since Paul has found a new value system in Christ, then like the Stoics, some things he formerly valued have now become unimportant to him. They are no longer priorities, but as the Stoics would say, indifference, That is, matters of slight importance. It is quite likely that Paul was somewhat influenced by common stoic ideas current in his time. But in one respect at least, this valuing of aspects of human life as indifference does not facilitate a coherent understanding of the apostle. As we have seen from 1 Corinthians 7, there are aspects of life that for Paul certainly could not be termed indifference since he gives his converts a ruling that they must hold on to the state in which they are called. What we are in the process of demonstrating here is that the concept of indifference to life, of a certain detachment from life, is not really typical of Pauline ethics and theology. Paul is on the contrary deeply involved in human issues whether he stands for something or stands against it. It is not really good Pauline theology to view him as indifferent to life's choices. That's why he got into so much trouble. One of these choices where Paul is clearly not indifferent is that he holds that those who became followers of Christ had to remain as we noted, as they were called. Of course they'd found a new faith in Christ that provided them with a new self-understanding. But their way of life was not completely changed, however much they were being transformed. Most surprising is that circumcision is also included in the list of things in which converts are called to remain as they were. It could have been beneficial for a Corinthian church member to hide the marks of his circumcision so as to appear more in keeping with the rest of Gentile society. But for Paul even circumcision is by no means an indifferent thing, hence his ruling about remaining in it. Nor is this rule concerning circumcision and uncircumcision in the Pauline communities An option that may or may not be followed on the basis of social or political context, as Paul's next argument in Galatians makes clear. Unlike 1 Corinthians where it was mentioned only briefly, in Galatians circumcision is actually a central focus of the letter and thus must have been a significant issue among the Galatian churches. In whatever form we attempt the reconstruction, the sitzim laban of this letter, the issue of circumcision for Gentiles remains central Paul's response is a definite rebuttal of any attempt to impose circumcision with or without the concomitant observation observation of the law upon Gentile Christ followers to these he says if you receive circumcision Christ will be of no advantage to you Paul's own handwritten conclusion in Galatians 6:11 to 18 however, gives a reason for this complete rejection of circumcision for Gentile Christ followers. Here he states, and I will not read uh, the, the rest of the text. I'd like you to look at it at this time just to, to see what, where I'm going and where I base my argument. That's Galatians 6, to 18, our second text. Here Paul states the motive that causes some people to advocate compulsory circumcision for Gentile Christ followers, is so that they may glory in your flesh. Galatians 6:13. Paul's response is that his only ground of boasting is in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. Then he sets out what I consider to be his summary hermeneutic in relation to circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision but a new creation as we noted this is similar to 1 Corinthians 7 but with a slightly different application to the context we note here certain important features of Paul's response to the Galatians in rejecting circumcision for Gentiles he asserts that what is of primary importance is not circumcision or uncircumcision but a new creation whereas 1 Corinthians 7 with almost identical words He finishes not with a new creation, but instead, what is important in Corinthians, is keeping the commandments of God. This is geared particularly to the needs of Christ's followers in Corinth, some of whom held the belief that the resurrection had coincided with their conversion. So that, for example, they no longer needed to marry or give in marriage, since they were supposedly living already in the age to come. That is, in short, in the new creation, So Paul adds a different conclusion to his statement about circumcision on circumcision in 1 Corinthians. What matters for them is not new creation as in Galatians. The Corinthians had a little too much new creation theology already. And so what Paul says is what is important is keeping the commandments of God. It would appear that Paul is seeking in both Corinthians and Galatians to put things into proper perspective. Circumcision included. Thus he also rejects glorying in the flesh. Galatians 6.13 His stated reason for this is as noted. The cross of Christ. From which his understanding of circumcision and uncircumcision is developed. He is then able to state a general hermeneutical principle. That neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. But keeping commandments of God as in Corinthians. Or a new creation as in Galatians. So we have here again in both Galatians 6 as in 1 Corinthians 7 an element of comparison or evaluation which leads to the view that in a hierarchy of values fleshly attributes, be the flesh Jewish or Gentile is not something in which to boast when compared with the glory of Christ on the cross. It seems also that by flesh although Paul actually takes human flesh as a starting point he is actually talking metaphorically about spiritual entities because he speaks of the cosmos being crucified, the world being crucified as well as himself. The development of Paul's argument goes thus circumcision is rejected for gentile Christians because the wrong motive behind the call for circumcision is boasting in one's flesh rather than in the cross. The cross means the crucifixion and therefore the death of all confidence and flesh of whatever origin. Thus circumcision or uncircumcision are both ultimately repositioned, revalued in comparison with the value system demanded by the cross by which the whole world is re-evaluated. It is not surprising if we follow Paul's argument carefully that uncircumcision, the very state for which he argues so fiercely in Galatians, is nevertheless also revalued alongside circumcision so that the focus does not abide on either Jewish or even Gentile existence but on living a transformed life in Christ. Now that is one of the most crucial things that I want to say. If Paul argued fiercely that Gentiles must not be compelled to be circumcised and then at the end of it puts things back into perspective by saying But at the end of the day, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is important compared with being in Christ. And as a result of looking at these two texts earlier, I then decided, particularly for this address, to look afresh at Philippians 3.3 to compare Paul's response in differing context. This is all the more significant since, as E.P. Sanders points out, in this text, that is Philippians 3 3 to 11 as in 2 Corinthians 3 4 to 18 this is what Sanders says Paul directly compares in an evaluative way the old dispensation and the new the context in Philippians evokes commercial metaphors hence my rendering of the title of 3 8 I rate all things as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So here we have three texts. 1 Corinthians 7.19. Galatians 6.16. And Philippians 3.2-4. In three letters written in differing contexts. In all of which circumcision or Jewishness. Feature in varying degrees. In a comparative. I would say rather than a contrastive context. I hope that by a careful thematic look. At what they say. And also at what is left on to discover if possible a more nuanced way of understanding Paul's views not just of circumcision Jewishness but much more important how Paul values the whole of life from the perspective of being in Christ that is what was the standard or hermeneutic by which he valued all things whether in Judaism or in the Gentile world. Now we're looking at Philippians 3 And uh, you have the text in front of you, perhaps you could look, there is a reference to circumcision here also, and uh, the only point I would make about that is that um, the Philippians 3.3, we are the true people of the circumcision. Uh, The true is possibly implied, but it's not actually present, it is an interpretation of the Greek. We are the people of the circumcision and in that sense uh, we have to be careful what Paul means by that and I won't go into it in any detail now. But the important thing here is that we have a third text which relates to circumcision in a slightly different way from the other two. It is not surprising to students of Paul that the whole of the apostles previous life must be judged and reassessed in light of the coming of Christ. This is especially true if Philippians 3 is written toward the end of Paul's life and possibly in prison anticipating death. Whatever the state of Paul may have been at this time, I am quite clear that his rating or reckoning of all things as loss is not simply the resignation of a man at the point of death for whom the whole of life is more or less over. Even if Paul were in prison, he would not yet have suffered the loss of all things. So we are dealing here with a principle that relates to all of Paul's life, not just to the end of it or to his imprisonment. The verb used here, hegeoma, as functions, as Jerry Sumday has noted, to show that Paul had adopted a new perspective with which he re-evaluates all the previously listed privileges in his past. As Somney points out, this evaluation of all things in Christ is not simply a past event, but an ongoing principle of the life in Christ, which continues to be the way in which Paul views all things. What is at issue here is not simply Paul's reiteration of the outcome of his Damascus Road experience, however much of a revision of perspective or pattern of life that must have been. If Paul were referring back here to his conversion experience, his call, however we describe it, It would explain in one way why Paul goes on to list his superior status in terms of Jewish ancestry and upbringing. Notice how in Philippians he says, uh, I could rely on these advantages as much as anyone, circumcised on the eighth day of my life, born of the the tribe of Israel, and so on, of the race of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrew parents, in the matter of the law, a Pharisee, and so on, a persecutor of Christians. Paul has a great pedigree here and if he were referring back to his conversion it could be that Paul is saying this is the sort of person I used to be this is these are the things I used to value we could then think of Paul's rating all things as loss as a clear indication that points to his former life as a Jew this might indeed prove valuable for the community at Philippi who would thus be reminded of Paul's Jewish past and his subsequent call to be apostle to the Gentiles. But if most of the Philippians were of Gentile origin, as I think they were, of what actual relevance would it be to these Gentile Christ followers to be told that Paul continues to view his upbringing as a Jew and associated values as worthless being in Christ? What would Paul tell them such a thing for what reason? But Philippians 3.8 indicates that Paul has revalued not just Jewish privilege, but all things, and found them to be lacking, to find them to be lost. The present tense of the verb points to the fact that this is not just something that refers back to his previous uh, pre-conversion life, but it is something that applies to his ongoing life, even as Paul is in Christ. And thus, he goes on to say, it's not just Jewish privileges that are re but everything else in life, even his life after the Damascus Road experience. So here the issue certainly does include the rating or evaluation of Jewish life and lineage. Paul asserts, whatever gains I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Yet here again the comparison is not limited to Jewish factors but widened as in 1 Corinthians 7 to include everything both what is Jewish and all else besides. And yet the question still arises why does Paul choose to speak of these Jewish values if he does not intend to demonstrate animosity to his own ancestral faith? And yet the passage here is basically developed around the thesis that even those things that are most highly beneficial lose their value or worth in comparison with the new value system in Christ. So what is under debate here is not things that are secondary importance, not things that Paul doesn't like, but what Paul's talking about are his cherished privileges, the things that he really values. The things that he really cherished. And so the question is. What do you do with the things you really cherish. When you are in Christ. Those things that are honorable. That are regarded as valuable or profitable. We're talking here in the imagery of profit and loss. So Paul says the cherished things. That I most value. That are most valuable to me. What do I do with them in relation to loyalty to Christ we're not talking then of those things that are in outright opposition to Christ but rather those cherished things and how we evaluate them again once we are in Christ E.P. Sanders says the comparison here is not between um, things that are negative and things that are pure or valuable. The comparison Sanders argues is between degrees of whiteness not white and black, black and white but a comparison between degrees of whiteness so these treasured things uh, are not just things of the past but things of the present world in which Paul lives. If becoming a Christ follower requires the obliteration of previous worlds I I quote a, a recent author And if it requires the relinquishment relinquishment of previous identities, then the things formerly treasured could have no comparative value, since they've already lost their value entirely in Christ. But Paul speaks here in the present, not just in relation to the past. So he's talking about those things that he still values, and those things that he still appreciates in Christ and his prayer for the Philippians is that they take as their ultimate value the superlative worth of knowing Christ thus one possible explanation that is ruled out in relation to Paul's list of profitable and treasured items is that he has now discarded these because in the new accounting system of being in Christ these things can no longer be regarded as assets however though these treasured values are repositioned In the light of Christ. Re-evaluated. In Paul's perspective. They certainly retain some value. uh, As is very clear. When his emphasis. On remaining as you were when called. Is also taken into account. So Paul says. Remain as you were when called. So therefore there is some value. To where you were when you were called. First in Christ. If that were not so, what kind of existence would it be to remain in a state which had no longer any value? So if all your previous life is devalued when you come to Christ, then what would be the point of remaining in such a life which had no value? In this sense, Paul is by no means countercultural nor dismissive even of his Jewish heritage. This is indicative of of something that I think is very important. That Paul's theology is one of transformation rather than obliteration and of new creation in the sense of transforming the old. So Paul, Paul is a theology, a theologian of transformation and, and that is the point that I really want to stress at this at this juncture. Thus we must note that the list is not so much concerned with things to give up or retain with the value of circumcision as compared with uncircumcision and vice versa, but rather which items should have ultimate priority, and where should living Jewishly or as a Gentile be positioned in this listing. If it is already widely known that Paul had turned his back on Jewish practice and life, for whatever reasons, then by using his former life in Judaism as a negative foil for the new life in Christ, Paul could rightly be seen as pro-Gentile, and at least as implicitly anti-Jewish. Also, there would then seem to be no good reason in some Gentile assemblies, other than a prejudiced attitude, for Paul's continuing to include Jewish elements in his comparisons. It is hard to see what specific benefit could accrue from this practice for Gentile Christ followers. What Of what benefit would it be to make them more anti-Jewish than they might already have been. But it's also easy to imagine what negative effects it might have on his own attempts to give his Gentile converts a positive understanding of the Jewish roots of the faith. Now what I'd like to, to, to sum up is to really look at this business of what Paul is undertaking in his comparisons? What is his theme? What is his real topic? What I'm putting to you now is that Paul seems to be continuing to practice his Jewish way of life even as a missionary to the Gentiles with whatever modifications that might require. If there was pressure as it appears in at least some of Paul's letters for his Gentile converts to begin to live like Jews and to possibly proceed to full proselyte status something entirely unacceptable to Paul, then Paul's own practice of Judaism as a Christian could become a lever in the argument of his opponents if Paul, the founder with others of these Gentile communities, did not live like a Gentile, but as a Jew. That this was the case is, in my view, beyond doubt. How could Paul, as a teacher requiring real credibility, teach his converts to remain as they were when called, If he himself, called as a Jew, then gave this up and lived to all intents and purposes as a Gentile, then the fact that Paul as apostle to Gentiles still lived as a Jew could be used as a powerful lever in any attempt to force Gentiles in Christ to become Jews. Such a scenario would give a good explanation why Paul in Philippians would choose to compare life in Christ with his own previous life as a Jew. Thus it can be argued that Paul's listing of his own treasured values as a Jew is not just incidental, but deliberately chosen for contextual relevance and effect to defeat the aims of opponents. The point of Paul's rhetoric here is not to offer a simplistic comparison of Judaism and Christianity via the medium of his own life and experience. However, it must be recognized and explained Why the issues actually used in the comparison in all three texts have elements relating to Paul's life as a Jew, as e.g. circumcision in all of these, and glorying in the flesh in Galatians, and confidence in the flesh in Philippians. The latter text also includes a list of credits, beginning with circumcision, that most Jews would be proud of. Yet it is significant that in 1 Corinthians 7 and in the rest of this letter, there is no strong emphasis on Jewish attributes. The 1 Corinthians in particular does not reveal much on that topic. The references to uncircumcision in Corinthians occur as part of a broader theme, which is leading the life in which one was called by God, a rule that Paul applies in all his churches. Galatians differs somewhat in that there is a focus on the act or practice of circumcision. And this is set onto the motif of living by the spirit or by the flesh. But at the end of this letter that is Galatians, Paul resorts to new creation terminology and relativizes both the state of circumcision and uncircumcision. If Paul had merely contrasted life as a Jew with being in Christ and not gone on to include everything in his comparisons then we would be left with at a minimum an implicitly anti-Jewish Paul. Paul's wisdom as a pastor and as a theologian emerges in the breadth of his comparison because not only Jewish values and virtues are to be revised in Christ, but so also are all other things, including the values and virtues of the Roman world in which his converts were immersed in these letters. In fact, Paul's theological and ethical strategy gains considerably if, in revising and thus reprioritizing all human virtues and fleshly achievements, he actually uses his own case as the primary example. Thus, when facing the challenge of Greco-Roman honor and shame ethics at Corinth or Philippi, he is able to speak with more power and effectiveness because he devalues not just his previous pre-conversion existence, but also the life that he still continues to lead as a Jew. Thus he is able to provide a telling example by using himself as a teacher and exemplar, not to devalue Judaism as such, but to teach the Corinthians others that the whole of everyone's life, be they Jew or Gentile, must be reassessed in the light of Christ. This is further elaborated in 1 Corinthians 4.16 following, where Paul again speaks of as I teach in all the churches." Thus the abiding principle Paul teaches is for both Jew and Gentile to put no confidence in the flesh or glory in the flesh. It is under this rubric that Paul begins in this passage Philippians 3-4 to apparently devalue his Jewish heritage. But in his wisdom Paul widens this reference to Jewish flesh to serve as an example for all his communities So the form of one's past and present existence whether Jewish or Gentile is not allowed to become something in which one can boast and thus threaten the unity of the community. Since this applies to everyone's past whether Jew or Gentile it can then operate as we have already noted in relation to remaining as you were when called in 1 Corinthians 7. It can operate as a rule for all the churches and this is probably as near as Paul gets to a universal application of his gospel. That is, that whatever your past, it is revalued in the light of Christ. And that can apply to all kinds of churches and all kinds of mixes of Jews and Gentiles. Essentially, this rule involves both a recognition of difference and simultaneously rules out any boasting in the difference. Removing the signs of circumcision for the sake of upward social mobility would lead to boasting in a superiority of Gentile identity. The parallel in Galatians is that demanding circumcision for Gentiles would lead to a boasting in the difference that circumcision makes, that is, in the superiority of Jewish identity. Unlike contemporary Greeks and Romans, boasting in their advanced culture over against so called barbarians that is over everyone except Greeks or Romans Paul recognizes and validates each one's particular fleshly existence in Christ whether as Jew or Gentile but in no way seeks to make everyone the same the difference is acknowledged and remains even though in Christ it is revalued or repositioned Paul's examples may seem to be anti-Jewish because Jewish practice is part of the actual comparison he creates. But this is only incidentally so, since he as a Jew necessarily refers to what is most cherished by him in his own Jewish tradition. It is also part of Paul's strategy to drive a wedge between Hellenistic honor and shame values, and so distance his own converts from pagan practices by using himself and his Jewish virtues as an example. But in this example... He is not saying that his mainly Gentile converts should develop an anti Jewish attitude in an area, say, such as Corinth, where perhaps there were very few Jews and even fewer Jewish or Jewish Christian counter missionaries, in my opinion. Rather, he is setting up boundaries that are generally applicable so that wherever you're past in Christ, it is devalued, revalued. And you must recognize this in the new creation values by which everyone in Christ, whether of Jewish or Gentile extraction, must now begin to live. And this is even more significant if circumcision and uncircumfunction in Paul are synonyms for Jew and Gentile respectively. So that when he says uncircumcision is nothing, he is in fact devaluing the previous way of life of most of his Gentile converts. And similarly with circumcision also in relation to himself and other Jews. Thus, Paul's deliberate widening of his comparison to include the whole of life and not just Jewish life is both pastorally and theologically appropriate, but also ethically very essential because it lays the same ethical demands on everyone, whatever their heritage or commitments. The strength of this call by Paul to reevaluate the whole of life would be much less if he did not take himself and his own treasured inheritance as his starting point. But he himself and his relation to Judaism, though central, are by no means the final focus of his argument. Paul and his values are in the end only an example on the way to arguing that he counts all things as loss compared with being in Christ. Thus the apostle becomes an exemplar for everyone, whether of Jewish or Gentile extraction. And their way of life, whether Jewish or Gentile in pattern, has to be reevaluated accordingly. Just as in Corinth, the comparison with the call of Christ effectively requires all, whether Jew or Gentile, to abide in the state in which they received their call, so now in Philippians, the past and present life practised by everyone has to be reevaluated in comparison with surpassing value of knowing Christ, and thus putting no confidence in one's flesh whatever the origin the ethnic origin of that flesh we note in this study that the comparison of Paul is not between being in Christ and being Jewish but between being in Christ and all other existence outside of Christ what would be the advantage of being anti-Jewish if there were no Jews left in the world sin would still be here And human problems would still exist. So Paul does not make the mistake of, as some of scholars in the history of Christianity have come close to making, that if only we could get rid of Judaism, the world would be a perfect place. The world will not be a perfect place because both Jew and Gentile are equally sinful in the mind of Paul. It might be argued, of course, that Judaism is included in the world outside of Christ. It is also true that Paul and Jews the entire world both before and outside of Christ as being under the power of sin. And yet it is not Pauline to simply include Judaism and the Old Testament revelation as being part and parcel of a sinful world. Everything in Paul's view is re-evaluated in the light of the coming of Christ. But this is not entirely negative in respect of Judaism, the law, and the covenants. Thus, even in relation to circumcision on circumcision, Paul is not confined to a displacement type of theology, but rather, as I've already stated, to a transformation theology. In this, he can compare degrees of whiteness, degrees of glory, because in the ultimate value system of being in Christ, even the good and cherished things must take second place to following Christ. But this is very important. Nevertheless, even if they are in second place, this is very different from being discarded, being declared worthless, or classed as indifference, or even as being obliterated. Paul does compare what he has in the Messiah with what he has in Judaism. But what he declares rubbish, is only so in comparison to what is so much greater. He does not say that the things themselves are refuse by their very nature. Rather, their significance is changed and new value given to them in relation to the primary value which is loyalty to Christ. Just a few words of appendix. What we might ask, what should Paul's values and his accounting system mean for us today. It should mean that from whatever background or tradition or ethnic identity or social level we may stand in or have come from, whatever we value most in our ancestry and traditions, this must not be something that challenges our primary loyalty to Christ. This is what Paul would have us hear after 2,000 years. Wherever you've come from, whatever you have, these things must not stand between you and Christ. However marvelous our fleshly heritage, but then given back to us to use in a transformed manner to transform the world. This includes our identity as citizens of a particular country. But even this has to be offered up to God so that our patriotism can truly reflect the accounting system in Christ which Paul has given us. Thank you.
1: That was an extraordinary beginning of this two-day symposium. I, I think, uh, Professor Campbell, you would accept any questions for a few minutes? Would that be... Anyone? Any comments or reflection?
0: Yes, I was wondering what, uh, what extent Paul's eschatological expectation would play in his, his calculations of, of value here. Would, would circumcision or uncircumcision be less valuable because the
2: circumcision would be would be going away with the Pharisees soon as Well, so would uncircumcision. You, you know, it, it, it's both. It took me a while, pre- while preparing this paper, to actually get that clear. I sometimes left out the, the uncircumcision or the other. And I think that, yes, I, I agree with you. Paul's eschatology here and... It would require more than one lecture on that topic. But, but I agree, and I, I, th- I thought what you were going to ask was, what's the point, uh, maybe there's no point in not remaining as you were since time is short. I mean, that, that, that is also something you, you might question. But, but I agree, and there are so many different views about Paul's eschatology, but the one thing I do agree is that his theology is not complete without your understanding his eschatology. so so that has to be factored in to every question about Paul. Thank you. Yes.
0: Professor, how how do you explain in Christ to college students?
2: Okay, yes.
0: You know, where it's relevant, where it's meaningful to them.
2: Okay, I I think that that is a huge topic, a huge question. Uh, I think that um, There are different ways of explaining it. But one way is to say that um, in Christ Jesus we are born into a new family. Or we are adopted into a new family. And that family is the family that comes from Abraham. The family of faith. And for Paul it seems to be that he wants to relate Christ to every aspect of his living. Every aspect of his thinking. And his acting, his working and it seems to be that in Christ it is a short formula for, for living life in commitment to Christ, in the company of Christ in the looking to Christ's kingdom coming really living the whole of life uh, with Christ as if you were with him already as part of his family so it, you could say being in Abraham and then being in Christ but uh, For me, uh, when I was a parish minister in in Northern Ireland, one of the things I once did uh, as a series of sermons as a young minister uh, was to take all those passages which have in Christ in them and then to talk about what this meant in everyday life for for my parishioners. And I think I learned a lot about it, uh, whether or not they did. But uh, but I do think uh, it's, it's very important for people to try to realize the presence of Christ particularly when you live in a cynical world and now we have all this debate about politicians pulling strips of each other and so on Uh, it's hard to live as if Christ were with you hard to live by faith but we don't look at things as the way they are, we look at things the way we would hope they would be if Christ were truly Lord and Master Uh, I think being with Christ and living as if you were within the family of Christ in every aspect of your life. I think that's, I'm trying to summarize, but I think it's an interesting question. It really seems to be the focal point of Paul's theology, being in Christ. How do you
0: see this affecting our dialogue with the
2: Jews? Have you been in dialogue with them over uh, things like this? Well, yeah, I think that... um, it's one of the things, and I have been in Jewish Christian dialogue, I was chairman of the Birmingham Council for Christians and Jews, appointed by the Anglican Bishop of Birmingham for a period of 14 years, so I have lots of experience of that, and it, they were good experiences, but what I, I think uh, we will find sometimes is that sometimes, sometimes Jewish people are happy to keep things the way they were. In other words, uh, the stereotypes of Jews and so on, they're easy in one sense because then we're both secure. We don't agree with each other and we're different and we'll keep it that way. Now, that's not good for dialogue. So if you want to change things, then I think we've got to acknowledge that in a way we have defined ourselves over against the other. I am not like you. Uh, Twins, children sometimes do this in the family. I am not like my sister. My youngest daughter was born in Scotland. The others were born in Ireland. And she used to say when she was really being put upon by her older uh, siblings, uh, she would say, I'm not like you because I'm shottish. Uh, and when she was tiny. So, so she, she was proud of the difference. But I think that we do have to actually not just look at the things we have in common, but the differences. And there's no simple solution to dialogue without being. But one thing is important. Coming with my uh, colleague here from, from Ireland, Uh, From God's own country uh, to America, God's own country, uh, we we know that there is no place in the world for encouraging prejudice. We have all the prejudice we ever needed in Northern Ireland and one of the things that I learned as a minister, I don't need to add to the prejudice that's already there. So my task as a Christian is to try to get rid of some of the prejudice that is already here. And one of the good things about talking to Jews as real people and trying to understand them just as other human beings is to to take them seriously and make them take us seriously as well. Uh, What I think I've been arguing tonight is that if you emphasize difference, and I want to emphasize diversity, then the other side of that is that you must not boast or glory in being different from somebody else. I'm better than you, and therefore uh, I don't need to take you seriously. But talking to Jews as equals in dialogue simply means we take them seriously and recognize that they are different, and possibly likely to remain different. But we can get rid of prejudice by understanding each other better. Maybe one last question.
1: Probably. I'd like to thank you very, very much, Mm -hmm. Professor Campbell.